revered and elevated. Throughout human history, people have sought after. They have fought after. I don't mean in wars. I mean they've fought hard in their life to attain it. Throughout human history, it has been recognized for what it was and the value that it brought to a nation, to a community, to a church, to a family, to an individual. It was wisdom, something the world lacks today. And when I say the world, I don't mean just the unsaved. I don't mean just the unchurched. Christians, the church lacks wisdom, folks. It is heartbreaking to see so many Christians make statements, public statements on social media. And I'm not talking about you and your social media. I'm talking about just things you see in the news and pastors who are interviewed and Christians and churches who, who write things that you're like, where are you getting this from? It's not in the Bible. We of all people should know what is truth. And yet we are just repeating what was told us because it's information. And the world, I understand that the world can get to this point where they think that all information has value. You know, to, to, to eliminate information is to somehow destroy the opportunity and access to it. But that is not a biblical statement, okay? Not all information has value. There's a lot of information that has no value. And as Christians, we need the wisdom to recognize which information is truth and what is deception. The problem with the human condition is we are lazy. It is easy to hear someone who looks like they know what they're talking about, who acts like they know what they're talking about, who when they speak, speaks with confidence, and in our laziness, we accept it as truth. You know what is interesting to me? Adults in this area are more lazy than children. Now, I'm not saying children, children. I mean teenagers, preteens. They are better at questioning information than adults are. Teen and you say, well, that's just because they're being sassy. Well, sometimes it is. I get that. Sometimes teenagers just like to question everything. But you know what? It is a valuable thing to be curious it is a valuable thing to question because if the person you're questioning doesn't have an answer, they're probably not the best one for a source of information, for a source of truth. And if when you question them, their answer is a question, they're probably not the best people for a source of information, a source of truth. God's word does not answer our questions with questions. God's word does not turn you into some type of antagonistic, uh, rebellious person for asking questions. God's word gives answers. And if you are going to evaluate information to determine if it is truth or not, then you should be using God's word. Just because someone claims to give you the word of God doesn't mean they are. And just because they are reading verses from the Bible doesn't mean they are applying them correctly. Because wisdom takes work. Wisdom takes effort. Wisdom takes humility. It requires by its nature humility. Because pride in its essence is self-destructive. So those who live in pride do not dwell in wisdom. So to dwell in wisdom, you must have already walked away from pride. Because pride says, me, 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 we, we, we. Pride looks at us, us, us. Pride does not consider God's heart, God's mind, God's will. 
pride says, what do I want? What is my will? You cannot, you cannot live in pride and wisdom at the same time. It's one or the other. Wisdom requires work, and wisdom requires humility. And because humans, not just the world, Christians too, are lazy and prideful, we are not wise. And so we just accept what is told us. If it sounds good and we like it, we accept it. That is pride. Our truth now is not based in what is. Our truth is based in what feels good to me. My truth and the truth I accept on that path will be different than yours because what feels good to me will not feel good to you. Our truths will not be the same because our feelings are not the same. And when we debate and argue truths, we aren't actually doing that. We're debating and arguing feelings while calling it truth because we are not wise. Don't be fooled, Christian. The world needs truth. The world needs light. Christ is the way the world needs. The truth the world needs. The light. The way, the truth, and the light. Christ is that. And if you want to be that to the world, then reflect what Christ already is. Don't start over and create something new. There is nothing you can create outside of Christ that is good for anyone. Don't start something new. Reflect what already is Christ. This passage of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Now, it is an interesting passage because it is basically a bunch of information that really, in my opinion, doesn't really just scream application. There are some passages of Scripture where I have a difficult time preaching through three verses because it has so much application, and I am an application guy. When I read the Bible, I ask myself, how does that apply? How does that apply? Who does that apply to? Where does that apply? I want to know the application, and I preach application. I appreciate passages like this because we need information, even information that is not screaming application. I'm not saying it has none. There is application in this, in this text, and we'll look at it together. But there is value to this information, even though it lacks a plethora of application, because it keeps us from being fooled. And that itself is extremely valuable to the life of a believer. Verse 1, now we beseech you, implore you, beg you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The day of Christ is also referred to as the day of the Lord. You find it in the Old Testament. You find it in the New Testament. We saw it in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. We find it in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 20. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. This day of the Lord, you might think, and I did mention this briefly in the last book. I've already gone over this, but I'll do so again for those that weren't here. This day of the Lord, you might think, is a day of celebration. It's the day the Lord returns. It's a day of great joy. We're going to have a banquet. We're going to be, be at peace for eternity from this point on. Except that's not what it's referring to. 
The day of the Lord, the day of Christ, is referring to the seven-year day of judgment that God promised the world would come for their sin. It is the day that the Lord will judge the world, and this day will not be one singular day. It is a phrase that is in reference to a group of years, seven of which the Bible clarifies for us. This day of the Lord is not a day of celebration for anyone, even Christians. Even Christians ought not to celebrate at the judgment of our enemies. And I've got to tell you this. The only enemies you should have are the enemies who've made Christ their enemy. (laughs) If they haven't made Christ their enemy, they shouldn't be your enemies. But those who've made Christ their enemy will be judged. That is not a day of celebration even for the friends of Christ. This day of the Lord is not a day that I look forward to. It's not a day that I'm begging will show up at any time because I do not want the world to be judged. It saddens me greatly when I hear Christians say things like that group of people, whatever group of people it is they're referring to that at that day in their life they just don't like. That type of person, that group of people should be put on an island somewhere and and a bomb should be dropped. You say, what Christians would say that? I've heard many say that. They're looking for judgment. They're begging for judgment. They can't wait for judgment. No lover of Christ would ever wish for any soul an eternal damnation, which is what will be received on the day of judgment. So the Apostle Paul says, don't be shaken, don't be troubled, don't be bothered, don't be deceived that the day of the Lord is already here. Some in this church believe they were already in the seven-year tribulation. He says, verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. This man of sin, the son of perdition, is not Satan. He's given a name, the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the servant of Satan. We're told that the Antichrist will be possessed by Satan, but not himself, Satan. He will be just a man who is created as all men are created. He will be born as all men are born. He will be raised by a mother or people, adults in his life, as all men are raised. But he will give himself wholly over to spiritual darkness. And Satan will use him, Satan will abuse him, and he will be the opposite, the antithesis of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost, this man will come to seek and destroy the saved. As Jesus Christ came to offer the way, the truth, and the life, this man will come to offer a different way from Christ, death, and he will only offer pain. Now we find it first, this man, the Antichrist, in the book of Revelation, we're told will offer a time of peace. And the Old Testament prophets were given the same information. This man will seem to be a lover of peace. This man will seem to be one who is for the people. The world will love him. The world will elevate him. The world will lift him up as a world leader. Yes, there will come a day where the entire world will follow one leader, but it will not be Christ yet. It will be this man, the Antichrist. And this man, the Antichrist, will be the leader of leaders, the king of kings on this earth, trying to push Christ out of his way and say, I am the new way. And we're told in this text that the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation, will not occur until this man arrives. 
You say, well, Pastor Russ, what if this man is already here? That is very possible. The man obviously needs to be an adult at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation for him to do his part. He cannot in his infancy as a one-year-old child be the leader of a world. So he will already be an adult, which means he will already be born, which means he will already be in existence and trained and ready to go. When that moment, the rapture comes and the tribulation begins, Satan will have his man ready. You say, Pastor Russ, if Satan is going to have his man ready, then does Satan know when the tribulation will be here? No, he does not. So can you put the pieces together? Satan has a man ready at every generation. Well, does that mean Satan controls death and life? Can Satan keep this man alive? No, he cannot. Which means Satan has multiple men ready in every generation, ready to go to be the Antichrist, to carry that banner when God calls the church home. Satan is ready to act. So is there an Antichrist ready to go right now? I would say yes. I would say there are many, many antichrists ready to go even in this moment. And there have been many in past history. And looking at history, you might be able to guess at who some of them might have been. We don't know. Satan doesn't tell us. God certainly does not tell us. But there are some prime candidates in human history, men who could have easily been the antichrist. Satan could have used for his endeavor of a one-world power, one-world government. Let's keep going. Verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Verse 5, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity, this mystery of sin, this man of sin that we don't know who he is and when he will arrive, he's a mystery, but he is a mystery of sin, doth already work. He's already among us for the reason I just gave you. Only he who now let it, that word let it in my Bible, might be in your Bible referred to as restraineth. He who now restraineth. It's the same idea. Two different words. He who now restrains or letteth will let. My Bible says, yours might say, will stop restraining. So let me say it this way. There is someone who is holding back the Antichrist. There is someone who is restraining, keeping in place the Antichrist, Satan, from doing his work. But then that individual will be taken out of the world, and the restraint is gone, and the Antichrist will reign. Can you guess who is the only one capable of restraining the Antichrist and Satan? Obviously God, specifically God the Holy Spirit. Well, Pastor Russ, doesn't God the Holy Spirit promise to be with us always, even to the end of the earth? He did to the church promise that. Did you know that promise was not given to the Old Testament Jews? It was given specifically to the church, which means if the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of this world, at least in his, in his presence, then who has to go with him? Otherwise, his promise will be broken. The church. And what is that moment when the Holy Spirit and the church exit this world at the trumpet call of Christ and meet him in the clouds? What do we call that? The rapture. I told you the other week, I am a pre-trib guy, meaning I believe the rapture takes place first, then the seven years of tribulation. And I said there are passages of Scripture that give me that strong belief, and this is one of the best ones. The Holy Spirit is with the church. 
He promises to be with us till the end of the world, wherever we're at, at any time, he is with us. The Holy Spirit is the one holding back the Antichrist. The Antichrist cannot arrive until the Holy Spirit is gone. But the Holy Spirit can't leave the church behind lest he break his promise. So when the Holy Spirit leaves and the Antichrist arrives, the church has left as well. The rapture. The rapture, the Holy Spirit and the church are gone. The Antichrist arrives. Seven years of tribulation and we return back with Christ And we watch as Christ enacts his judgment, his final judgment, upon the world at the end of that tribulation period. Let's move on now to verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, this is the Antichrist, with all powers and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There are three, in my opinion, bothersome passages of Scripture referring to people being uh, unable to be forgiven for their sins. Three. When I say bothersome, I don't mean it's a problem. I mean when I read it, it bothers me. Bothers me that at any time in history, people who might want to be saved wouldn't be saved. People who could be saved won't be saved. There are three. In the Gospels, one of the passages is referred to as the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, as you look at Scripture, Christ defines as those who claim that the power of God is actually the power of Satan. Jesus was doing miracles, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, others saw the miracles of Christ and says, He is a child of the devil. And his works are the works of the devil. And Christ turns to them and says, I will forgive all sins except for that one. That sin right there. What is that sin? The sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is what? Well, Christ defines it for us. It is claiming that the work of God is actually the work of Satan. Now, to be saved, you must accept Christ as Savior. You must accept Christ as God, as a son of God. If you believe Christ is the son of Satan, you can't be saved because you do not accept Christ for who he claims to be. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the belief that Christ is not God, but of Satan. And therefore, obviously, you're not going to be saved. The other two passages are both related to this same text right here. One in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it states that God will send a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, meaning they're not going to be saved. These people will not be saved. Who are these people? Well, I've heard tell from many preachers. I've heard on the radio. I've read books. I knew multiple pastors who believe that anyone who had the opportunity to be saved before the tribulation, and when the rapture came, if they could have been saved before the tribulation but rejected God and were still here during the tribulation, they will have strong delusion and they will never get saved. They will die in their sins during the tribulation. Now, that's a scary thought for many of us who have mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters that are not saved and have most definitely heard the truth. It's a scary thought that if we were raptured, the 
the knowledge that there is no way they would be saved. They would have such a strong delusion, such a strong deception that they would not break from it, and that God would give them that strong delusion. Keeping them from salvation is a bothersome passage of Scripture. But it's more bothersome when you read into this passage what is not there. The belief that this strong delusion is given to those who heard the truth before the rapture and rejected it, and now during the tribulation will never get saved, is purely an assumption. Because this passage does not tell us when the strong delusion will occur. This passage only tells us it will come upon those who've rejected the truth. But people have been rejecting truth for centuries. Many in this room were part of that group at one time. And you did not receive a strong delusion. So this strong delusion is obviously in reference to the day of the Lord because that's the text we find ourselves in. The belief that it comes at the beginning of the day of the Lord, at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, is still an assumption because it does not say the delusion comes at the beginning. It just says it will come at this time. So I'd like you to go, if you want to turn there, you can, Revelation chapter 14. If you don't want to turn there, write it down, and I'm going to give you the passage of Scripture that I believe is the sister passage to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It is the passage that clarifies this strong delusion, who receives it and when they get it. I'm going to read it for you. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. There are three angels that literally preach from the sky. You want to talk about God making it as easy as possible to be saved? During the tribulation, there will be such extreme judgment, such pain, such misery, such torment. The Antichrist himself will reign that God makes it easier to get saved during the tribulation, in my opinion, than any other time. You will see spiritual demons, actual demons running around the world like never before. You will see things that your eyes did not think were possible. You will see people raising from the dead and preaching again. You will see miraculous things that will deny modern science. And you will see angels of God like prophets, like preachers, like evangelists flying in the sky preaching the truth. There will not be a denial that God exists. At this point, people will not deny God exists. They will just have to determine which God they believe in. Will they believe the Antichrist to be God or will they believe Jesus to be God? Because everyone will know there is a spiritual realm during the seven-year tribulation. No one will deny that, not one. It will be a matter of which side of the spiritual realm will they choose. Three angels circumnavigate the globe, preaching from the sky. And the third angel, this is the message that they offer. The third angel followed them, the first two, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead, that mark we're told in clarification earlier is the mark of the beast, 666, the forehead or the wrist. And I believe it's actual, literal, imprinted stamp on their body, on their skin. Verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receive the mark of his name. If you take the mark of the beast... Your spiritual eternity is locked in. There is nothing else you can do to change that. Once you accept the mark of the beast, you are going to go to hell when you die. This is the only other passage of Scripture than the first two that I mentioned that state such a profound truth. 
that if you do this, it's over. The first one I mentioned in the Gospels, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, can be changed in your life. You can at one point in your life say, Jesus wasn't God, he's a child of the devil, and then later say, never mind, he is God. We see Pharisees doing that very thing. In the book of Acts, Pharisees getting saved, we know that's possible. But this second one, the strong delusion in 2 Thessalonians, tells us that once you get it, it's not going to be gone. It will not be erased from your mind. Once the strong delusion comes upon you, it's there permanently. And you will go to hell when you die. When the strong delusion comes, why the strong delusion comes, and who it comes on, that's the real question. And I believe it's answered in Revelation. The strong delusion does not come on those, in my very strong opinion, on those who rejected God before the rapture. I believe the strong delusion only comes on those who've accepted the mark of the beast. And during the tribulation, by the way, the mark of the beast will be made available and accepted around the middle period, about three and a half years in. They'll have a good three and a half years to decide and to see all these miraculous, amazing things to decide who is God. Not if there is a God, which one is God. And if three and a half years in, they still believe that Satan and the Antichrist is God and worship him as God and take his mark, God says, you know what? You may survive the next three years, but making that decision, you will die and go to hell now. This is the only time in Scripture that I see such a statement. That should be a comfort to you because I remember when I was young, I was told the opposite. I have a brother who's unsaved. At the time, my brother was still unsaved. I knew it as a young guy. Unsaved, I knew it. And it bothered me to think that the rapture would mean my glory and his eternal judgment. I find a little more comfort knowing now that even people like my brother, when the rapture comes, may recognize the rapture for what it is, may remember what he was taught his childhood, and may come to God at that time as many millions will. Almost immediately at the beginning of the rapture, God will no longer use the church. He'll use the nation of Israel, and there will be 144,000 Jews almost immediately who will be converted. By who? Well, not the church. We're gone. By Christ himself. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. Their eyes will be opened. They'll see the Torah. They'll see the Old Testament. They'll, they'll see Scripture for what it was. They'll get saved without anyone even leading them in the Lord's Prayer. Imagine that. Someone gets saved without being led in the Lord's Prayer. Shocking. 144,000 Jews. You know what they're going to do? Lead other Jews to the Lord. You know what they're going to do? Lead millions of Gentiles to the Lord. The Bible tells us Jews and Gentiles both, millions of them, will be getting saved during the tribulation. Unfortunately, most of them will not survive it. Most of them will get saved and will be martyred, will die at the hand of the Antichrist and his wicked servants. But the church will not be there. And why do I believe that? Because the Holy Spirit promised to never leave us. But the Antichrist cannot arrive until the Holy Spirit is gone. Therefore, we are going with him. The rapture. What a long introduction. I am fully aware of that. Do not fret. Do not be bothered. Do not be troubled in your heart. I am going to quickly now give you what I see as the application. I see, number one, signs of chaos. Number two, man of sin. Number three, permanent delusion. These applications are not the real truth of this text. What I just outlined for you, what I gave you the outline of what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, who it's going to happen to, that's the real truth of this text. And I would have not have done this text service by just giving you these applications without explaining what's going on here. I've done the passage justice, and now my heart is application, and I will quickly give that to you. 
Number one, signs of chaos. For sake of time, I'm not going to be reading the verses now. I've read most of them. You have the Bible in your lap, on your phone. Read through the verses as I give them to you and give you the applications, letter A. Those who follow signs rather than Christ will find fear rather than faith. Verses 1, 2, and 3, what do you find? The Apostle Paul says, stop looking at the signs, man. Just because they're signs doesn't mean they're true. Just because they're signs doesn't mean they're pointing to what you claim they are or what people claim they are. He says, even if you get a letter from me saying Christ is coming back today, don't believe it. It's a lie. Someone else wrote it because I don't know when the, Christ, when, the, when the Lord is coming back. I don't know when the rapture is. I don't know when the day of the Lord will begin. He says, these signs, it's just superstition. How many Christians have fallen way to superstition? What are we doing superstition is looking at the clouds, looking at the insects, looking at the birds, looking at people. Superstition is saying, God, if you want me to quit my job, then let a red car drive by me right now. Wow, a red car, I guess that's it. God wants you to quit my job. That's superstition. What are you doing? If you're looking for signs, you will surely find them. Christians don't live their lives by signs. Christians live their lives by truth. The greatest sign that Christ offered, he said the greatest and final sign. When the religious leaders said, give me a sign, give me a sign, give me a sign, Christ said, it's a wicked generation that always asks for signs. Stop it. Stop asking for signs. Stop asking for some mystical thing in the clouds. God says, I'll give you something better. I'll give you truth. Truth is what you live your life by. And he says, you wicked generation, always seeking signs, enough with you. I will give you one sign, and it will be the greatest sign. It will be the sign of me raising from the dead. That is the last sign you should seek. That is the last sign you should need. And from that point forward, listen to the truth because of the sign that I gave you. Here we are 2,000 years later. Lord, give me a sign. Singing, Lord, give me a sign. Praying, Lord, give me a sign. And we are drawn to preachers who say, I've got a sign for you. Over here, look at this sign. Oh, over there, over here, oh, over there, over here. We're going to bring in a prophet who's going to give us all signs and wonders. The Apostle Paul literally told this church, stop listening to these guys. Stop watching them. They don't know what they're talking about. You only find fear when you follow signs. Why? Because when you follow signs, a deep part of you knows there's a possibility you're not interpreting it correctly. There's a fear that you could be wrong when you see that sign. There's a fear that the one who gave you the sign is misinterpreting it. It's a fear that you might do something to hinder the sign. Live in fear. You live in fear because those who offer you signs can tell you whatever they want it to mean. It's just made up mumbo jumbo anyways. Fear is a great way to control the masses. And giving them signs is a great, great way to get them to be afraid. We are not called to live in fear. We're called to live in faith. Not faith in signs, not faith in the signs speakers, faith in the truth giver, Jesus Christ, the greatest of all sign givers, and the last sign he promised us, his death, burial, resurrection. Letter B. Looks are deceiving. Don't be fooled. Looks are deceiving, don't be fooled, we find in verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul saying, whether the signs you see, they are in spirit or word, even in verse 2, by a letter from us, literally something we wrote down. There's different ways these signs could occur. Don't be fooled by them. It may look legitimate. It may seem like it came from God. If it contradicts this book, it did not come from God. 
If it is something outside of this book, I'm not saying it's a lie. There are many things outside of the Bible that are true, gravity being one of them, all right? Just because the Bible doesn't speak on gravity doesn't make gravity false. There are plenty of things that are true outside of Scripture. But when it comes to spiritual matters, I'm not talking scientific. We're talking spiritual now. When it comes to spiritual matters, any spiritual matter that is discovered outside of the Bible is immediately, for me, immediately suspect. Not immediately embraced. Not, oh, the Bible missed something. Oh, Christ, you know, should have told us this. Oh, where was the Holy Spirit all this time? I sure am glad I've got, you know, prophet or preacher so-and-so to tell me what God forgot. When it comes to spiritual matters, it is suspect if it's not in the Word of God. Why? Because at that point, if it's not in the Word of God, you are hearing it from a person, and all people, to me, are suspect. (laughs) including myself. Even sometimes I suspect myself, all right? Everyone is suspect. Our truths that we create outside the Bible, we just need to say, you know what? If it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to accept it on the level of truth as the Bible. But the problem with looking for signs is people say, I'm the new Bible. Let me prove it to you through these signs. Letter C, the Antichrist enters as the church exits. I already went over that with you in depth Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means at the end that the Son of Man be revealed, the Son of Perdition. Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth or restrains will let or stop restraining until he be taken out of the way. That's the Holy Spirit. The Antichrist enters as a church exodus. Now listen, remember the, the main title, number one, Signs of Chaos? Christians, we love to look at the news. We love to look at wars and rumors of wars and say, aha, wars and rumors of wars. Christ spoke about wars and rumors of wars. And he said that when there's wars and rumors of wars, then, then the day of the Lord is coming. What well, must be tomorrow. Except literally 2,000 years ago, the church in Thessalonica thought it wasn't tomorrow. They thought it was yesterday. The church in Thessalonica thought they were already in the tribulation period. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying, wars and rumors of wars. Oh, the Antichrist is coming. Wars and rumors of wars. Oh, the day of the Lord is upon us. Yeah. Paul, the apostle, thought the day of the Lord was near. That was 2,000 years ago. When I was 5, when I was 10, when I was 15, I went to church, and guess what the preachers preached? Wars and rumors of wars. The day of the Lord is near. And I wasn't even, even an adult yet. I was a child, as a teenager, hearing these messages. And now I'm 39. I'm not telling you Christ can't come at any time. He most definitely can. I'm not telling you he won't come tomorrow. I'm telling you I don't know. And I'm telling you that the war in Ukraine and Russia is not the sign that he's going to arrive. There are always wars. I teach history in middle school. You know, I tell my seventh grade students, I said, the history of mankind is a history of violence and warfare. You want to find wars and rumors of wars? You will find them at every time, every generation, all the time. Wars and rumors of war does not mean we're in the tribulation. It means mankind is suffering. There will be wars and rumors of wars when he arrives. How do we know which one? We don't. There is a sign that points definitely to the day the Lord becoming, beginning, and that is the Antichrist right there. The Antichrist, his arrival, that is the for sure sign that the day of the Lord has begun. And you won't be here to see it. Praise God. We won't be here for the sign. 
<laughs> we won't be here for the sign that will most definitely say the time starts now. So who will that sign be for? The 144,000 Jews, the hundreds of thousands and millions of Jews and Gentiles who will get saved. They will see the sign only too late, but fortunately for them, not so late that they can't be saved in this time of chaos. Christians, we most definitely learn, live in a time of chaos. Do not live in fear through the chaos. Don't let these signs push you to fear. You are on the winning side. You will be taken to heaven before the Antichrist arrives. We not will win. We won. We're playing out the clock. The clock will end. We are the victors. Letter B. I'm sorry, number two. Excuse me. Number two, man of sin. Let's talk briefly about the Antichrist. I don't want to give the guy too much time. This is, morning is not about the Antichrist. This morning is about the Christ. But the Bible does speak on him, so I will address him as briefly as possible with as little uh, information as I need to because I don't want to give the man a place of honor in this service. Letter A. Satan does not deny the existence of, the existence of God. He denies the authority of God as will his servant, the Antichrist. The Antichrist will not say there is no God. The Antichrist will say there is a God, but I am the better God. Oh, yeah, he'll say Jesus existed, but I'm better Jesus. Oh, yeah, there's a God in heaven. You can see his angels preaching, but they're nothing compared to me. Oh, he does miracles, as do I. You see, the Antichrist will not look to eliminate God. The Antichrist will look to replace God. Pride. You know what the first sin was that ever was committed? It was not the eating of the apple. It was not disobedience and rebellion. The first sin ever, ever committed was pride, and it was not by Adam, it was by Satan himself. In pride, he lifted up his heart, and he said, I am God. I will become God. Well, that didn't last very long. Christ chucked him out along with all the third of the angels who pridefully agreed with him, and the rest is history. And it will be pride that the Antichrist will elevate himself with and say, worship me as God. The human condition is not much different today than it was thousands of years ago, and it's not much different today as it will be in the future with the tribulation period. The human condition is not necessarily always going to eliminate God. The human condition will always elevate ourselves to the place of God. There are entire religions, entire spiritual movements where people say, I have become God. I will become God. When I die, I will own a planet and rule it as God. You say there's religions like that? Yes, I'm not here to talk on them. But literally there are religions that believe when you die, you will be given a planet or planets, plural, with a bunch of people who will be your slaves. I'm not sure what they did wrong to be your slave, but that's how it's going to be. And you will rule planets as God. I am God. What foolishness. We are not God. We need a God. Make sure you choose the right one. Letter B, Satan has prepared a candidate for every generation. God has prepared his church for every false candidate. I talked about that in my introduction, that uh, there has to be someone or someone's plural ready every generation to be the Antichrist. And by the way, there has to be a young Antichrist growing up, a teenager Antichrist, an adult Antichrist, and an Antichrist who's in his, in his old age who already was past his prime. Because again, Satan does not know when that time will come. And it cannot just be a few guys. There has to be, I would say, dozens if not hundreds of guys in various stages of their life ready to go so that when the rapture hits... Satan will choose one of those hundreds from the prime of their life and say, this is the one I choose. He's the final candidate. Put him to work. He's the Antichrist. Every generation has 
hundreds, in my opinion, of children, teenagers, adults of various ages who are going to be, who are prepared to be now, or who were prepared to be and past their prime to be the Antichrist. We are living in a world full of Antichrists. They don't have the authority and position given to them yet because the Holy Spirit is still here. But these men are in our world among us. God has prepared his church for that world. Do not be influenced by these men. You say, won't we know them when we see them? Well, let me ask you, what do you think they look like? Well, I think they'll be dressed like um, Satan with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Well, I think that they'll be wearing leather and tattoos. What do you got to get leather and tattoos? What's wrong with you? Come on, man. I like leather. Well, I think that they'll, you know, you, you put on whatever you want. You say whatever you want. I'll tell you what they look like. The Antichrist was a spiritual man, is going to be a spiritual man. He's going to be a man who will call the world to worship. He's going to be a preacher. He's going to be a man who will unite the world under religion. He will not be against religion. He will be pro-religion. He just want to control it. He will be one of the most religious men you know. He will be a great orator. He will have friends that are great speakers. And he will gather together with him a false prophet who will be his voice. You think the Antichrist is some kind of murderous fiend who's living in prison. Well, an Antichrist can't rule the world from prison, now can he? No, I believe the Antichrist is probably, very likely, in a church service this morning as we speak. Might even be preaching in a church service this morning as we speak. The Antichrist is not who I think Christians believe him to be. He will be extremely religious. He will gather all the religions together, and he will convince the world to be religious. That takes a special kind of man. That's the Antichrist. Letter C. Christ conquers the best that Satan has to offer with little effort. Verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. What do we find? Verse 8. This man is going to be consumed with the spirit of the mouth, we're told in verse 8, of God, who is going to destroy with the brightness of his coming. Very little effort will be required on the side of the real God to defeat this false God, the Antichrist. Number three, permanent delusion. I've already explained from Revelation what I believe this permanent delusion to be. So let's go ahead and take a look at the applications. Letter A, in his pride, Satan will claim he can defeat God. In their pride, humanity will believe it. Pride, I believe is the sin that permeates all other sins. If there is a sin, you will find pride. And those who reject God will do so in pride. Verse 10, they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. In their pride, they chose the wrong God. Letter B, even in his wrath, God will offer salvation to all except it. Verse 10, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, meaning it was available to them. God offered the love of truth and will offer it in the tribulation period. There will be 144,000 Jews, and those are legitimate Jews, not Gentiles who want to be Jews. Those are Jews in the future, not Christians and prophets and preachers who died in the past. There are 144 actual thousand men 
who are born in this life, who will get saved in the tribulation period, and I believe will all be martyred. Because you find them all later in the book of Revelation, all in heaven. <laughs> Which means they're going to die before the end of the tribulation. Oh, what a glorious thing to be one of the 144,000. Not so much. They will have their moment where the Antichrist will not be able to touch them. But then God will lift his protection and the Antichrist will be swift in his destruction of these great prophets of God. You cannot become one unless you're a Jew. And if you're saved, you won't be one because you'll be gone. So if anyone ever told you you might be one of the 144,000, they don't understand Scripture and you have been fooled. The 144,000 are currently Jews unsaved. And if the rapture came today, they will be adult men who did not believe the, the Lord was Savior, will believe the Lord is Savior, will get saved in the tribulation, will preach the truth, and will die shortly after. God will use these 144,000. God will use others, including these two prophets. Some believe our resurrection, uh, the resurrected uh, great men like maybe Elijah and Moses. We don't know who these men are, but these two men will stand up, preach the truth. The Antichrist himself will destroy them. They will lie on the ground, dead, not like dead, dead for days. They will be then risen from the dead, and all the world will watch. And he has risen from the dead, and they will ascend to heaven like Christ before. Another opportunity for the world to see God is greater than Satan. And yet people will still choose Satan. People will still reject truth. I've talked to many people who said, you know what? I'd be saved if I could see God. That's not true. Look at Jesus in the Gospels. Everyone saw him. A lot of people saw him. They still didn't get saved. Well, I'd be saved if I saw miracles of God. Yeah, that's what people said to Jesus. Show us more miracles so we can believe. Jesus said, I've shown you enough. I'd be saved if I could hear God. Okay, same problem there. In the Old Testament, God is constantly speaking to the patriarchs and others and people not getting saved. Well, I'd be saved if God dwelled on earth. He's going to for a thousand years dwell on earth and people will still not be saved. You'll find at the end of the thousand years, people will reject the Christ who literally dwells on earth as Messiah and King and they will march on Jerusalem to destroy in their attempt, in their foolish, prideful attempt to destroy God. Fire from heaven will destroy them all. Prove to me that there is a God. You know what was told to us in the Bible to the rich man who went to hell? And he said, let me go back and tell my brothers and sisters about hell so they won't come down here with me. And Abraham tells this rich man, they have the word of God. Let them read that. This is all we need right here. Stop asking for signs. Stop asking for proof. Live this. Because even when Christ does dwell among us, people will still reject him. Letter C. Those who join the Antichrist on earth will join the Antichrist in judgment. And this is the strong delusion we see in verses 11 and 12, that they all might be damned to believe not the truth. When it comes time for them to actually make a decision halfway through the tribulation, and they say, all right, God, whose angels are flying around the earth, or the Antichrist, we choose the Antichrist. I'll say this, and we'll be done. As that choice is being made, this is halfway through, that is when the angels are preaching one last time. Can you imagine literally standing in line? There will be a line, I imagine. <laughs> to get the mark, and as you're standing in line, angel flying above you saying, get out of line. Because <laughs> if you stay in there and get it, it's over. You'll be damned. And they still stay in the line. And they still say, I'm next. Give me the mark. 
literally to the very last moment, God is still sending preachers. And in this case, angels themselves. Why? Because all the prophets are dead. They killed them all. At this point, halfway through, the 144,000 are dead. So God says, all right, you want to kill the prophets? I can't get a prophet to stay alive? I'll give you angels. They'll preach. And to the last moment, they still have the opportunity to get out of line. Don't ever tell me our God is not merciful. Don't ever tell me our God is not gracious. Even to the most wicked among us, God offers truth. They must accept it. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the truth that we found. I thank you for the reminder that we will not have to suffer the tribulation, that the Holy Spirit, when he leaves, will take us with him. I know that it will be chaos. It will be pain and judgment during those years of tribulation. I pray that we would do our job now so that fewer will enter into that time, that more will exit with the Holy Spirit when he takes us home. I pray that we would stand up for truth, stand on truth, and live that truth for all to see. In Jesus' name. Amen.